This is one of several interviews on innovation, business and sustainability for the students studying for the MSc in Sustainable Resources at UCL. My name is David Bent and I'm an honorary lecturer at the UCL Institute for Sustainable Resources and co-lead for a module on eco-innovation and sustainable entrepreneurship. Most of the course gives people the latest academic theory and insight. These 30-minute interviews are with practitioners to give some of the grit under the fingernails of innovating for sustainability, sustainability today. And I'm delighted to say we're joined by David Hunter of Bates Wells. He's a senior lawyer there, and so we're going to get into that. So first off, David, hello. Hi, David. Nice Hi. to see you again. <laughs> nice to see you too. What is your role and what is your organisation? So uh, my organisation is Bates Wells. It's a law firm uh, based in London in the UK. Um, and I'm one of the, the, the lawyers at Bates Wells. We're a relatively modestly sized law firm. Um, probably we're just creeping to the top 100 by size in the in the UK. But um, quite distinctive in that we were the first um, UK law firm to become a B Corp. Um, so that meant the partnership changing its, um, its sort of deed to say it wasn't all about profits for partner and was still profit-making, but in the context of trying to be um, take the impact of our work into uh, its impact on sustainable, uh, sorry, into social and environmental impacts into account in what we're doing. Um, and uh, the reason I joined Bates Wells 12 years ago, having previously been a partner in a, another commercial practice, uh, was all that focus on uh, impact uh, and not just simply being about okay, how much how much money can we make? Um, so I am a uh, my title is senior counsel, um, partly because I like to do only three day weeks to give myself a bit of free time to to do interesting things on, on the side. But uh, as as may become apparent in this, actually, the more time I've been at Bakes Wells, the, the easier it seems to be to mm. blur blur the line between what is the uh, the the basic work and what is the ancillary stuff and how they work, build off each other and, uh, and support each other. Great. Thank you. And my memory is that Bates Wells was involved in some of the changes that have happened to UK law over the last 15 years to do with what are the tests of being a charity in the first instance, and then later new organisational forms that have a legal permission around community interest companies and other things like that. So it's been a, campaigning is probably too strong a word, but a, an advocate for more legal forms that allow organisations to have more purposes than just money-making. Exactly, yeah. It, it's always been part of the culture to try to proactively use law for positive effect rather than simply working with whatever it is and thinking that's as much as a, our, our role was to interpret it as it stands, uh, you know, there's, there's always been a desire to try and improve if we thought there were ways to do so. Cool. And then when it comes to your role in the organisation, you've already said you're a general counsel and there's a sort of mixing of the things you're interested in from outside of work within your work. Is there a particular domain that you are most interested in? Is there a particular aspect that you're in charge of or um, are important in leading? In terms of, so I still do client-facing work, still work with with clients of, of Bates Wells, and it tends to be the clients who are on that edge between um, still being profit making and still, uh, but also trying to, to do some good in the world. Um, and so, 
I mean, when I first came to Bates Wells, it was very much the sort of the socially enterprise, social investment space. And I still have quite a few clients who are who are coming from that space. But also uh, wanting to sort of draw perhaps some of the more commercial businesses towards us and say, look, you know, if you, if you want to make claims to be responsible, or if you want to make claims to be sustainable, maybe you need to be thinking a bit about your governance arrangements, how you contract with with, with, with third parties, mm. um, you know, what the external impacts of your, your business are. And that's something that we've got a lot of experience with and can, can help with. And then, and then internally, um, I've uh, uh, been quite um, involved in creating the climate commitments that Bates Wells have, have made back in 2019, uh, and this year we've also um, published a pledge, um, which is a very explicit uh, statement for clients, prospective clients and colleagues and prospective people who may want to come and work at Bates Wells in terms of where we stand on issues like sustainability and responsibility and how we define mm-hmm. what that is and what it means for our, for our business day to day. So, like I say, sort of, you know, facing in, in both directions. Great. And I think we might come back to that in when we think about some of the innovation stories you have. And then last of these sort of setup questions, how is sustainability or impact or benefit? How is that framed in your organization? Do you have a definition? Do you have a poster on every floor which lays out what that means? Uh, in terms of what's around the building, it, it is the pledge, which is which is on the website and is on the footers yeah. and emails and all the rest of it. In terms of, so we, we define sustainability following the, um, the definition that was originally in the Brundtland report back in the, the 80s and then actually became um, the definition of sustainable development that the Charity Commission still use mm-hmm. uh, if a charity wants to exist to for the purpose of sustainable development. And in terms of um, that's that's meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet, to meet their needs. Yeah. And we still think... We still think that that survived the test of time is still very relevant today in terms of thinking about the the, the long term as well as the, the, the short term impacts of what we're doing. And that covers the whole, I suppose, waterfront of different issues from climate through to equality, so environmental and social issues and um, economic ones as well. There's... We, we have... Um... Just to make sure we that, that's what we're talking about, <laughs> sustainability and responsibility. Right. Because we've we've found that um, we can get into very long conversations about sort of, you know, does things like the just transition, you know, is that part of sustainability or is it is it something else? And obviously increasingly we're now we're getting involved in in stuff like biodiversity loss and mm. um, what does it mean to be a nature positive business and there is a huge amount of overlap in terms of the behaviours that support, you know, dealing with the climate or, or dealing with biodiversity loss. But at the same time, you can very easily get into situations where a client will try and justify what they're doing. And I'm not talking about base wells clients here. I'm, I'm talking about across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. The businesses and organisations may say, well, yes, this might not be terribly sustainable, but actually it's, you know, it's, is bringing some money to the to the Nigerian economy, so that's that's good, isn't it? Yeah, and and you know, and, and that may be true, but it it may not depending on how it's done. So, I think it is useful to have have you know more, more than one flag to uh, to be able to um, 
to check ourselves against and, and, and make sure that um, you know we're, we're getting a proper balance in terms of the approach we're taking to, to some of these things. Great. So let's move on and, and have some innovation stories. Can you can you tell us some uh, a story that gives a good example of your work on innovation for sustainability? Understood in the round there. Um, I think well, I think I can do uh, what I'm most interested in. Uh, uh, so I'll, I'll start with that. And if you want one that's a bit more, uh, <laughs> well, let's see Terry tell me. But uh, so going back to. Um, uh, our, our sort of climate commitments three years ago. We uh, one of them was to try and have a positive impact um, beyond ourselves, beyond mm. base wells, and that was partly because we are a small firm, and it was mm. partly because our culture is one of not working for organisations who you would typically regard as being dirty industries or, or you know, sort of high emitting or, or causing, causing sort of perhaps uh, you know social problems. So even if we were looking after our own house, the impact that we could have in what we're accepting is an emergency was going to be relatively small. So we were very interested in in going beyond just simply sort of you know what, what we were doing at our own desks mm-hmm. and thinking about how could we amplify our impact and how could we try and influence um, clients more broadly? How could we try and influence? Um, lawyers more broadly, how could we influence other professional service sectors to think about an appropriate response to, mm. to being in an emergency. And uh, that coincided with um, a couple of networks being set up around that time and we, we joined one or two of those and and we're still members of them and they are doing quite quite good stuff. But one thing that was, was consistently ignored was the issue of... Um, um, not simply trying to find some clients who are doing good things to work for, but having a really difficult conversation with the clients about, mm, should you be really doing that? Yeah. And if you're saying, yes, we're going to be doing, we're going to be doing this, then us having the difficult conversations in terms of, well, should we really be supporting you to do it? Mm-hmm. And, and we recognize that on any individual law firm basis, if you have that conversation, it's very easy for them to, to just turn and, and go somewhere else. So the impact is going to be fairly, fairly negligible. And the, and the them here is the client. The client can just go to the next lawyer who'll, who will help give that advice. So just saying no might yeah. be virtuous from your point of view, but you've not had an, an, any real impact. So how do you make? How do you address that collective action challenge? That free rider of the next lawyer who goes off and does what they want to do. Absolutely. So so what we then did was try to use some of these networks we joined to say who is interested in in this issue and we, we were helped by the fact that the finance division's concept was, had begun to be talk, talked about at that point and we were helped further as we were beginning the conversations by um, the work of purpose disruptors in the advertising world again mm-hmm. sort of saying look it's not just about finance you know we yeah. can think about this too and we, we managed to, um, to find a few firms who were saying we're prepared to say yes. We think this is a valid issue to uh, to, to think about. Mm-hmm. No, no, nobody's got the answer to how how you actually engage with it. But we'll, you know, we're, we're happy to, you know, we'll meet up. We'll talk about it. We'll identify what the barriers are to, to doing something about it. We'll think about ways in which we could potentially bring it into our strategy, into our sort of um, deciding which which pieces of work 
that we advise on. So we, we managed to, and, and that had the benefits of um, part, partly it meant that, and, and the idea was that, you know, if you could get even maybe just half a dozen big firms saying, yeah, this is the direction of travel that needs to be followed, then it makes it harder for the others to to ignore you. Mm-hmm. And if you, so if you then get another six yeah. saying, yeah, we want to get in the conversation too, you don't have to, to change every single law firm in, in the country. You just have to get enough for the clients to think, hmm, actually, we may need to start thinking about how we're doing, you know, the choices we're making ourselves or we're restricting advisors that we can we can use. So it was about that, it's a little bit about sort of culture change and, yeah. and the context in which everybody's working. So, um, so we managed to, to you know, to, to, to get a, a, few, a half dozen or so firms to, into the conversation. We managed to get another half dozen firms saying, um, actually, we want to be part of the conversation, but we, we, we know, you know, we've got offices all over the world. We know we can't commit to a public statement yet mm. because we know that in East, Eastern Europe, Europe or in in Africa or in, in, in North America, they just our colleagues are going to say, "What are you doing?" <laughs> yeah. So, but notwithstanding that, we you know we, we started to, to to be able to build up a conversation and and um, make law firms aware that this was, this was happening and it was sort of on the horizon. We managed to influence law society guidance that came out earlier this year about solicitors and climate change. Sorry, I've got a really bad frog in my throat at the moment. I've been, I've been, I've been in COVID last week. But um, they, um, so we managed to get the guidance to say there is a thing called advised emissions. Hmm. Coming down the track, you may want to start thinking about it. Yeah. Now we've got the United Nations um, race to zero. <coughs> now we've got the United Nations race to zero group setting up a professional services forum to discuss this concept and be part of that conversation. So it's becoming to, it's beginning to uh, become substantive. Yeah. Even though, I mean, actually it's got very little, it's not going to change Base Wells very much on his, in his day-to-day practice. Other than that, it's going to mean that we're going to be able to, hopefully, if this has some impact, we're going to, to, we're going to be able to say, yes, we were part of this, this, project yeah. it also means hopefully we're going to have a be living in a, in a more comfortable world than we will be doing otherwise yeah and um and if i just unpack a few things there and if you need to take a drink now might be the time <laughs> i was do this um i suppose one thing that people who've not worked in large businesses may not realize is just how much a large business relies on either its in-house counsel or its lawyers to get make sure that it's on the right side of the law or at least it knows where it is with respect to the law and make a deliberate choice about that. And if it's legal advisors are saying, no, you can't do that or something along those lines, or actually we're going to find it difficult to advise you about this. And often these folks will have had long to very long-term relationships that actually sends a bit of a chill down some executive spine because they very much want to be clear that they are not being negligent because once they're being negligent, then they can be sued yeah. and they, their insurance won't protect them. So there's there's a whole level of personal as well as organisational jeopardy which is opened up when the, and there are a huge reliance on those law firms. And then the other thing is the 
um, I, I speak as a qualified accountant rather than a qualified lawyer, but the professions, those advisory professions, are very used to giving the advice that the companies want to hear, or at least <laughs> say, like, if you're the client, we'll find a way for you to be able to do what you want to do and looking for those loopholes. I'm thinking in an accounting world about tax advice in particular. Um, and those professions are very conservative. They, like, somebody else sets the rules and the firms will then play within those rules and maybe try to influence them a little bit, but they very rarely proactively grasp and try to say, no, this is the direction for the industry. So I think it is, it's... Um, to have lawyers more than just Bates Wells, but including Bates Wells, saying, no, there's a direction of travel here where there's certain kinds of work which over time we should be stopping doing because that work is making the world worse and we can't, doesn't fit with our professional ethics to do that, even though it, we also have professional ethics about objectivity. There's something also about the state of the world which we need to pay attention to. That's a really big change in the, the culture and the setup of what the professional... And even the professional standards and what counts as professionalism in these highly regulated professions. Yeah, that's that, that, that's absolutely right. And, and then again, there's sort of the it kind of faces in both directions. So, as, as you were saying a moment ago, in terms of our interaction with clients, um, you know, that there are a, a couple of sort of assumptions that mm. um, people who are resistant to this sort of a, a, approach have been using and again a lot of this is, is, is coming out of north america hmm. uh, some listeners may be very aware of the sort of very strong sort of um push back an argument in the, in the states that any, any sort of collaboration between businesses that's pro uh, climate is anti-competitive hmm. and therefore you can't do it and so one of the things that um, we, we've been doing across the, you know, the within these these networks i've been referring to is to come up with a, a position paper that says that's not true. You know, yes, there are competition law considerations that you shouldn't um, just ignore, but there are legal principles which, if you apply them to the context and if you apply them to actually what firms are doing, means it's perfectly reasonable and appropriate to try and find um, ways of. Uh, collectively improving legal practice or insurance practice or whatever mm. it, it, it may be. Um, so, you know, rather than everybody saying, well, our, our advice is our advice and we're never going to share it, sort of saying, no, actually, actually, you know, having we have a stronger voice and more impact by saying this is a position that we collectively hold. And the same is true with um, fiduciary duty, the concept of fiduciary duty, which um, most immediately... Um, First lister or, or an accountant indeed or the professional service advisor is the one we have with our client mm-hmm. and that's and so you'll get some in our profession sort of saying well our duty is to do what our client tells us to do and if they want to you know carry on uh, creating missions then our job is to help them do it something and we're saying um well not necessarily Potentially, there is a duty to, to advise them on the liabilities, whether they're you know, on, the, on the risks, you know, whether they're physical, whether they're transitional, whether they're um, sort of regulatory as, as more and more uh, requirements come in in terms of things like reporting, uh, or whether it's in terms of you know, greenwashing and how businesses are presenting themselves. 
there's an increasing number of, of reasons why you can't ignore the climate and you need good advice on it. Um, so why don't you help help us deliver that? And so you're, you're sort of, you know, you're, you're re redefining potentially what that fiduciary duty is between solicitor and, and client. The particular interesting thing with this, with, with this issue is that the client, you know, the board has its fiduciary duty to its to the company, which is usually assumed to be, well, it is the, the shareholders, mm -hmm. but there's assumptions about what the shareholders want. Do they yeah. just want you to make as much money? Or if they're a bunch of insurance companies and pension funds, are they thinking a bit more long-term? And you know, should you be thinking a bit more long-term long as a result? So it's not necessarily, uh, and in fact, you know, that, that fiduciary duty continues at the chain. So if they're not talking to their um, investees in those terms, Maybe they ought to be in their fiduciary duty, and he's explaining to them. So, you know, you get a whole I mean, yeah. supply chain isn't the word, but you've got a whole chain of, of duties there that you know could be and can be, and we're hoping to help make aligned in a much more coherent way that then removes a, a number of blockages. In you know, I mean, it won't happen in one fell swoop; it'll probably be a hmm. more of a domino. But um, you know, there is the potential there to, to have much bigger impact than you might think comes out of one conversation about a fairly scary topic. Yes, and I think this the topic of fiduciary duty, most people will have heard of that more in the duty that the current leadership of a company, the executives have to their to the owners. And there is it I think it's been mostly taught in business schools and there's a sort of myth of fiduciary duty for on those company um, executives and on the company directors that the the myth is that they must maximize their uh, financial success they must maximize their returns and that's not what it says in english law or in fact any other law around the world there's quite a lot of work by uh, unip uh, finance initiative and others which has got um has got uh, legal advice on that uh, but the because the myth is of you must maximize people feel that they must maximize and they think that there is no legal option for them to do other things and as you say that passes up the chain from the companies to the immediate owners who would be pension funds or insurance companies and they then have beneficiaries which is you and me the pensioner to be the insurance payer who in 20 years time or at some point in the future is hoping to have the returns from their investment um there's, a, there's this chain of fiduciary duties which if everybody along that chain thinks that they must maximize they end up trying to sprint but the best way to succeed in a marathon is not to sprint every hundred yards yes and exactly and so the the fiduciary the, uh, the acting as if the fiduciary duty is to maximize actually undermines the long-term fiduciary duty and this is an example of one of the ways in which the seemingly well certainly unsexy and seemingly boring stuff around governance and legal setup is so important when it comes to trying to innovate for sustainability because if people believe that they have to maximize all the time that stops them doing other kinds of innovations which might pay off in the longer term but have um a struggle or uncertainty in the short term yeah yeah that's that, that's absolutely right david and it's so so another argument that has, has often been made on this particular point is that because as you say it's um Legally, it's perfectly possible for a business to decide for itself that it's going to have a purpose other than profit maximisation and can 
put that into its, its um, governance documents. Um, there's an argument that often comes back that says, look, the ability to so that exists, everyone's choosing to, to maximise profits. So that's just the way it is. And clearly that's, again, is, is part of that, that cultural thing. It was part of why B Corps sort of came in, into being because they were sort of saying, well, look, you know, it's taking too long for the, the legislators to to realise that practice isn't aligned with, you know, what people were hoping might happen. So we're going to make it easy for um, businesses who do want to operate for impact to, to make that very explicit and to, to identify themselves as such. Um, the B Corp movement is now trying to, is, is uh, lobbying for something called the Better Business Act because the scale at which B Corps are, 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 are the B Corp concept is being taken up whilst it is still going up at a reasonable pace isn't at the right pace for the emergency we're in. So they're trying to say, we still want to make it legislation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you, then you get something like the Chancery Lane Project, which is another initiative within the legal profession where they're saying, yeah, and because it's taking a long time to get anything changed in, in terms of in legislative terms, what do lawyers do most of their time? They negotiate contracts. Mm-hmm. So let's create a whole suite of, of uh, contract clauses which uh, all businesses can use to to embed those behaviours in the way they're, uh, they're relating contractually with their, their supply chain. So, you know, we're gradually being able to see that it's being... Um, solutions being offered in every direction that that people turn should they want to you know uh, engage with the issue and be concerned about where to start or what's going to be most effective given the other pressures that they have yes and i think just to emphasize for folks um how important contracts are so at the heart of any business a business succeeds and or operates because it has relationships it has relationships with suppliers with customers, with staff, uh, with shareholders, all of the ways in which those relationships are mediated, and in um, in extremists, uh, they have to like be enforced by is contracts. You may not have looked at your employment contract recently, but it is the employment contract which governs your relationship with your employer. And um, and so, if those contracts are blind to, or even accidentally operate in the opposite direction to sustainable outcomes then that will hamper whatever efforts that company or indeed any other organisation is trying to have. So to have those explicitly in those contracts is actually opening up a whole new space for new things to happen. Um, and yeah, I can't emphasise how important it is the, the, the way in which contracts determine what a firm is and what it does is just hugely important. Yes, and that, and that operates. So so the, um, the Chancery Lane contract clauses operate at quite a granular level and there's also now other initiatives that are, are looking at because as, as you say I mean effectively contracts have have been certainly in all the time I've been practicing law um, very I mean by their nature they're transactional mm-hmm. and what tends to happen is the the, the most and, and it's largely about um, trying to push risk you know, both both parties or or multi-parties if, if there's, there's more than two involved. Everybody's trying to push risk away from themselves somewhere mm-hmm. else. And usually it's the most powerful that, that win in terms of that particular battle. And usually it's the um, the powerful are probably best equipped to manage those risks if you're looking at the thing holistically. 
So there's now there's now two or three initiatives in different areas, some of them in finance, some in, some of them commercial, about trying to, to make contracts more relational and say, mm. okay, well, what are we trying to achieve? How between us can we can we achieve that? What's the risks that are likely to come up? How can we engage to to manage those if they do have to mitigate them to head them off of the pass? Can turn it into a much more of a, again of a collaborative exercise rather than somebody just signing something thinking, well, that's okay because if it goes wrong, we'll be all right. Yeah, because obviously we're now moving into territory where if it goes wrong, nobody's going to be all right. Absolutely. And um, people can listen to the interview I did with Alison Ward, who's the chief executive of Cotton Connect, where their work, especially with the smallholder farmers who are at the bottom of the supply chain of cotton, absolutely the reason why Cotton Connect needs to exist is because in that supply chain, the contracts push all of the risk onto yeah. the most exposed and least able to act on that risk, which is the smallholder farmers. So that, and so the, in one way of understanding what, what they're up to at Cotton Connect is trying to change how that risk is all um, distributed. Um, and there was another thing that was in my head, but it's gone out of my head. So I think we should probably keep on going um, with, uh, I suppose, the, is it, do we have time for just a quick version of the story on the pledges? So the pledge... The stand Bateswells has on an issue. I'm, I'm just imagining speaking with your lawyer colleagues, how many, how carefully drafted those pledges must have been <laughs> in order to get through your law yeah. colleagues. So what what was, what, give us an example of one of those pledges and why it was worth the, all of that effort to get it through and get it into the public domain. I think well the, the the one that inevitably uh, attracted most attention uh, was uh, making a commitment not to um, to advise on matters where we think it is uh, incompatible with our sustainability and responsibility commitment, and we have framed that to an extent um, in terms of you know if you if you if you root things in, in the science and and we accept that we're being told that emissions need to reduce by 50% by 2030, then can we um, can we be confident that um, the emissions associated with the, the, the work we do for our clients is is reducing on a on that sort of trajectory. Mm-hmm. And we're you know we're we're miles away from having a, a means of actually calculating that with a degree of um, calibration that would, you know, would mean we could be definitive about it. But it's just a really helpful um, signposting to how we need to be thinking about, about this stuff. And so, um, you know, there was a lot of back and forth on not wanting to be too pious in, in how we came across with this this pledge and unrealistic and, you know, sort of one or two partners saying, well, if we're not careful, we're going to not be able to advise anybody. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we need to be careful not to, um, you know, just effectively do, do ourselves without, out of being a business and that would be, be, be counterproductive. Um, but at the same time, not have statements that are so caveated but it just is a typical lawyer's statement, and everybody, you know, as soon as somebody starts reading it, they'll think, "Oh yeah, but you know, they've given themselves the, the get out." So is this really 
credible and should we put any put any weight behind it um i think partly because we have got quite a history of, of sort of um operating in this sort of field that gives it a bit of heft and a bit of substance mm. it probably gives us a bit more leeway than perhaps others coming into this for the first time might have um and actually it's also thrown up a new well not new but different problem for mm. us in that some of our colleagues have sort of said well you know none of my clients really you know they, they all, they're all the good guys so yeah how am I, but but they're the good guys because they deal with homelessness you know mm. try, trying to address homelessness or or addiction or some mental health issues so um they don't really want to like start have to start telling us now how they're reducing their emissions every time they, they do another piece of work so how are we supposed to bring this into the conversation or how are we supposed to you know be consistent in in, in terms of, of that so you know we're in a way we're struggling as much as some of the you know the, the bigger firms who perhaps you know are sort of um their issue is that while we're we're advising a client who's on the third tier down of a 12 tier supply chain that's doing something that you know ultimately is probably a bit messy but the bit that we're advising on is fairly fairly innocuous isn't it so what does that mean yeah so you know um it's it's still very much i think and, and part of it is about giving colleagues permission to have the conversation because even yeah. if actually the decision is there's not much different we can do at this moment in time again if clients are expecting to have that conversation right, and and we know of some big clients some insurance companies and some uh, even some public transport companies are, are starting to when they go out to tender for advisors saying who do you act for why do you act for them yeah have you, have you got any positions on this what's your strategy to reduce you know so again it's all part of that you know sort of um shift in in expectations towards this being part of um you know what we ought to be thinking yeah. about well it makes me think and i remembered the point that i was going to raise before as well which relates to which is in uh, the master's module we we talk about there's different levels of innovation and that People are very familiar with the idea of product innovation. Like your your computer gets better, your TV gets better. The product improves and changes over time. And then there's process innovation, which is how is that product made? Like what is the manufacturing process or, or the wider process? But here in our conversation so far, we've been touching on two other kinds. I think what you've just been talking about there is what we might call market or marketing innovation, like changing the position of the product in the marketplace and saying... And trying to influence what is demanded by the customer. Um, in this case, an expectation that if they are trying to do something which is in the direction of addressing the Paris Agreement, that you, it won't be undermined by what some other client of yours is doing some else, elsewhere or of the law firm that they're engaged with. And then the other one, which is back to the previous example around new kinds of contracts and new kinds of legal bases for. Um, organizations those are um those are management innovations so it means that the way in which an organization can be managed is different and therefore what the organization can get up to is very different again and no longer constrained by the past and the assumption of the past and maybe we're ready for the future i want to move into our next last few um questions 
So firstly, what are the biggest challenges you face in the work that you're doing, especially I suppose the, 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 the work that you're trying to innovate the role of the lawyer? What's the biggest challenges you face there and how do you overcome them? Uh, the, the biggest challenge, I think, really is um, that what we're really talking about is often gets to people's identity, mm. particularly people who are more senior in these organisations and these uh, professional services sectors, you know, who have been very successful by probably by working very hard in a certain way. Yeah. And are now being told you need to think about things differently, and um, you know that is hard anyway. You know, mm. needing to, to shift, you know, the, the patterns and habits that you're that you're used to and, and rely upon. But it's also slightly personal as well. You know, there's an yeah. inference in there that you've been doing it wrong. Yes, particularly if you have been working at Baseballs and you think, "But I'm a good guy." I've been working for one of the good guys, and you're now telling me that I've been missing something. Yeah, well, we, well, we try we try to frame it as a you know a, a, the next evolutionary step rather than yeah. digital, but but even so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that is, I think that's. Uh, I mean, it's by no means the only challenge, but I think it's the, the, the in some ways the knottiest to deal with because it's also the one that, in a work context, people are in again talking about law particularly. At least willing to mm-hmm. to be open about and to confront. So you know, if we, if we want to sort of have a session on climate contracts, they're up for it. If they want, want to talk about competition law or fiduciary duty or changing constitutional documents, they're up for it. But if it's sort of like, okay, how can we how can we behave differently with our clients? How can we you know sort of approach these things from a very different perspective then you know you can see a lot of uh, sort of shifting in seats and uh, you know sort of heads down and all, all the rest of it but it's that that's going to unlock in terms of you know really making a change it's that that's going to unlock things so I, th- I don't think we can ignore that in terms of how we deal with it uh, yeah it's absolutely still a work in, in progress i mean there is there are things like the three horizons model which you'll be aware of which um I think is very helpful um, in terms of um, guiding organisations and individuals through through change. Mm. But again, it takes an investment of of time to really get into the detail of that. And a business that effectively sells time is always quite <laughs> reluctant <laughs> to you know to give up too much of it to yes. you know some highfalutin new theory. Um, we're also getting quite a few young lawyers who have come into the profession hoping that things are changing and either mm-hmm. finding that they're not really or they're not changing fast enough for them, who are who are now leaving the profession, but not, not just turning their back on it, but trying to set up um, either coaching um, you know, consultancies or, or mini firms or finding mm-hmm. other ways to still use their their legal skills but in a, in a positive way and their their um their very existence i think is is again has this sort of snow potential for a snowball effect in that people are, you know can see it's not just you have to go and sell your soul or you yeah. you know you go and do something else and they they seem to be 
you know, sort of mushrooming quite quite quickly at the moment. So, um, you know, the, the challenge always for this is, you know, can we do things quickly enough? But there is there is definite sense of of progress, and I think if we can at the one end have the big international firms even just acknowledging yes, we, we want to be part of this mm. conversation because we know it's it's an important one, and that's where the future lies. And then pressure from the bottom uh, with the young lawyers, pressure from the the side because the clients, you know, mm-hmm. to some extent we're trying to say to clients, isn't this what you want? Yeah. And then and then they say yes, and then we tell other people within the law firms, look, the clients want this. <laughs> Is that the kind of yeah. you know virtuous circle there as well? Wonderful. So, yeah, getting from every direction, then uh, there's a chance of moving forward. Well, and that illustrates a, a sort of truism, which is. Um, it's not rational arguments that win the argument. It's 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 when people feel like all of their peers are moving. That's when the herd moves because we are much yeah. more social creatures than we are rational creatures. And that, yeah. that's, an, that's yeah. an insight for anybody who's trying to create change. Um, yeah. Quick one. If I, mean, I want to force you to be quick because there could be a lot to answer to this one. But if there was one thing policymakers could do which would make your work significantly easier, what would it be? Um, I think if the, if, um, if businesses had to account for the for their externalities and take responsibility for that, and that flowed through, you know, in, into annual accounting and reporting, if it flowed through into, um, you know, sort of that would then impact on all those directions duties we were talking about. It would impact yeah. on. Mm-hmm. on governance relationships with investors i think that um would open a gate that an awful lot of stuff could come in come in behind and and then you're you know you're actually looking at everything from a different perspective yeah um so it's by no means the only thing but i think it would you know allow a lot to come in behind it cool thank you and you mentioned uh, earlier, the idea of advised emissions, which I guess is a little bit like embedded emissions. It's like, uh, or it's a that the equivalent or the thing for an advisory firm would be, what are the extra emissions that came about because of the advice that we gave, and if that wasn't taking us in the direction of the Paris Agreement, then we should take responsibility for that, and that's an externality which sits on our lap, not just on our client's lap. Yeah, I mean the way we've. I mean, it could go in that direction. Um, the way yeah. we approach them at the moment is is using that because um, I think the reducing by fifty percent by twenty thirty carries an urgency with it that nothing else has got so the, yeah. uh, at the moment, uh, and is quite an easy one to a, a sort of a bar to measure against without having to count every single thing. You, you kind of know if you know if you're looking across your practice as a whole. Yeah, you know, and we can we identify. You know, if we can only identify two or three things that actually look like things are reducing, and we've got twenty that's still going up, you know, we're not we're not hitting that, are we? So yeah, um, and, and it is itself a a, a way to um, try and tr- drive the behaviour change, the culture change we're talk, talking about, rather than the emissions. The idea is that in a few years' time, you, if it's working, you don't really need to focus so much on the advised emissions because. You know that conversation about okay, is this making things better or worse? Is just part of yeah you know, every kind of conversation between a, a client and their advisors about how can we do this? Great, how can you help us do this? 
Uh, and I said quickly, and then I asked a follow-up question, which meant you didn't stand a chance of being quick. Sorry, it's my fault. And then just the last question is about the future. What are your organization's priorities on innovation going forward and why? I, I think it is um, that how can we um, how can we find ways, how can I leave us to change um, that has greater impacts than just doing a piece of work for a client. Mm. You may. It is on charities and sustainable development. Mm. But um, just last year, we managed to get another court ruling uh, saying that it was uh, permissible for charities now to spend their, uh, to, to focus their investments on social and environmental outcomes and not just making them the pot bigger for the for the charity if if there is sort of they're an organization that's supposed to be about those issues mm. so it's that it's those systemic uh, uses of the law that i think is what really excites us and uh, we want to try to do more of cool sort of addressing the bottlenecks to people doing the right thing because they're constrained by the yeah. law yes yeah, yeah exactly yeah One, uh, you know, as, as you were saying you know sort of breaking down those assumptions we can't do it because it's not legal so like, you know, either actually it is or it really would be if we could just tweak that. Wonderful. And I think that speaks to a, a theme for our conversation, which is upstream of a lot of the physical and process innovation that most comes to mind when people think about these are the changes we needed for we need for a sustainable world. The upstream of that is needed to be what um some people call the boring revolution in governance and legal setup and architecture, because it's yeah. the current governance and legal architecture which is partly holding things in place and that needs to change in order to open up the floodgates for the innovation downstream in the things which will really connect with people's lives so i just want to say a huge thank you to you david and the work you're doing at basewells and everybody uh, you've been listening to innovation for sustainability um and thank you very much for your time thank you very much david thank you very much david pleasure to be here